It's Sports Day Plus with Trey Elling. Coming up on episode number 55 of Sports Day Plus. At 6.30, it is the first of a two-segment conversation with comedian Moshe Kasher about his outstanding new book, Subculture Vulture, which is being celebrated with a conversation between Moshe and fellow comedian Duncan Tressel at Book People tomorrow night. And a mere seconds, I'm spending the first couple of segments talking about the NFL Conference Championship games from yesterday. And if I have time, did Texas basketball just revert to the mean with an ugly loss at BYU on Saturday? I am your host, Trey Elling. You can give me a follow on Twitter at Courtesy Wave and do the same for ESPN Austin at 1027 ESPN. Congratulations to the Kansas City Chiefs and San Francisco 49ers. They will be playing for a Super Bowl title here in a little bit less than two weeks. And unfortunately for Ravens and Lions fans, that's a loss that's probably going to stick with you for a while. Let's start with the earlier game, the game on the East Coast between KC and Baltimore. Ravens came in as four-point favorites, and it did feel like this might be their year to get over that proverbial hump. Even though the Chiefs had been playing better, Baltimore had a ton going for it as well. Lamar Jackson, the likely MVP of the league. A heralded defense that was not only number one in the league at points allowed per game, but also takeaways. And things seem to be clicking for them on both sides of the ball, really all facets, including special teams. And it looked like we were going to get a bit of a shootout at the start of the game with teams trading touchdowns after Baltimore was fruitless on their very first drive. But unfortunately, the Ravens didn't uphold their end of the bargain after the Chiefs scored a second touchdown to go up by seven points. And really, there wasn't a whole lot of scoring after that. This is a game that only saw three points scored in the second half and... Once again, the Kansas City Chiefs do what they need to to make it back to the Super Bowl. If the AFC Championship game is Pat Mahomes home away from home, I don't know what you call the Super Bowl. His almost annual vacation spot? Just crazy to look up the uh, elite company that he's in right now with regards to making it to the Super Bowl before a certain age, and history of this being made in the process, too. Ravens should be ticked off right now because that offense that we saw wasn't what helped them get to this point. It's not like the game was out of hand at any point, requiring them to throw the football more than they needed to, but it's a team that not run the football nearly enough. Especially when you consider that the Chiefs, as good as their defense is, and I'm guessing they're going to start getting a little bit more run now for just how good they've been this year, they've been better in defending the pass than in dealing with rushing attacks. And with Baltimore's dynamic rushing attack, you assume that that might be more of a weapon throughout the game yesterday afternoon. But that turned out not to be the case. 16 total carries in the game for Baltimore. Lamar Jackson leads the way with eight. Gus Edwards has three. Justice Hill only has three. I thought he had a pretty darn good game the previous week. Zay Flowers, 
Gets two carries on his own. Speaking of Zay Flowers, just a brutal fumble for him as he's about to go into the end zone for a touchdown. But he fumbles it. And the ball ends up going out of bounds. And that is another one of those moments that Ravens fans will probably be citing years from now. Chiefs fans too, by the way, is a huge moment in that football game. Zay Flowers, he had a good game too, by the way. He did have another touchdown. Went over 100 yards receiving, five catches. But it was a pretty pedestrian effort by everybody else on that Baltimore offense. Lamar Jackson included, by the way. That's the bad interception, of course. Eight carries, 54 yards. Not a bad rushing total for him. But when he's doubling up any other Ravens running back on rushing carries... I think if you had told me that before the game, I would be a little bit concerned about their ability to win this one. Isaiah Pacheco didn't have a great game for Kansas City, but man, that guy runs hard. Does have a touchdown to show for it as well, and it was the Pat Mahomes, and then yes, a throwback Travis Kelsey performance. 11 catchers, 116 yards, a touchdown. Taylor Swift in the suite. The cutaways to her. Yeah, we're going to have to deal with that for one more week. The final week of the football season. That's going to be our reality. My wife and daughter are going to be thrilled by that. We probably need to be talking a little bit more about the Andy Reid domination of his former assistants. Of course, that was a talking point for a long time in college football with Nick Saban going up against his assistants. Andy Reid is now 6-0 in the playoffs against his former assistants. Oh, and by the way, that Travis Kelsey... Performance, he just passed Jerry Rice for the most catches in postseason history. That's how good he's been. And he's closing on some other marks as well. Touchdowns, total receiving yards. Regardless of position, by the way, this is, we're not just talking tight ends. We're talking any receiver as the him surpassing Rice and catches shows you. Pat Mahomes is now 14 and 3 in playoff games. 14 and 3. Lamar Jackson for what it's worth falls to 2 and 4 in the playoffs. And now he's going to have to wait another year to prove those who don't think that he can get it done on the biggest stage wrong. By the way, some more on the Travis Kelsey History slash record book. Travis Kelsey, 156 catches most ever over Jerry Rice. 1,810 receiving yards, which is the second most ever. And 19 touchdowns, which is the fourth most ever. 21 career playoff games. He's established those numbers. I saw a stat with Pat Mahomes, and I cannot find it right now, but he is in his own company, with regards to making it to a Super Bowl so many times before the age of 30. I guess that's what the stat is. And just considering this game, the the matchup in the Super Bowl coming up in less than two weeks, how do you bet against the Chiefs at this point? They just continue to prove people wrong. There are people who are on the Bills side, going back to the divisional round, and people on the Ravens side, myself included, yesterday. (laughs) 
I know San Francisco was one of the most consistent teams in football throughout the course of the season. I'm not picking against Pat Mahomes at this point. Get out of your freaking mind. We'll get into the 49ers and Brock Purdy's performance coming up next segment, but it comes down to Pat Mahomes versus Brock Purdy. Pretty simple. Both defenses are good. Kansas City's defense probably a little bit better. And even if the defenses are completely equal, take into account, sure, all the weapons around them, but it's Pat Mahomes and Brock Purdy. We don't need to complicate this too much, do we? Or maybe I'm underthinking this one now. Because I've had to come back around to full-on Chiefs believer that whatever happened in the regular season, it doesn't matter. Come playoff time, this team just hits a different gear. By the way, the receivers who were a big part of the problem this regular season. Zero drops yesterday. Jeff Barker with KI does a great job covering sports for KI. He and I do a regular show on YouTube during the week. A couple times a week, usually. He pointed this out after the wild card round. The Chiefs receivers seem to be getting their act together. Didn't have a drop in that game. I don't think they had a drop in the divisional round either. And now we get to the championship round. Perhaps it's not a coincidence that Kadarius Tony is not a part of the active roster. They're doing their job now too. So congratulations, Chiefs fans. You're back there once again. Coming up, we will get into the NFC Championship game on the other side. The Lions go full Lions. It's Sports Day Plus with Trey Ellie. It's Sports Day Plus with Trey Ellie. Coming up, we will talk a little NFC Championship game with the 49ers. Mounting a massive comeback and defeating the Detroit Lions, whose fan base, just when they think they have it good, they are given a cold slap in the face as to who and what they actually are. First, though, I wanted to let you know about a friend of mine. His name is Brian Hummel. His website, HummelRealtor.com. Are you searching for your dream home in Austin? Or maybe you're curious about how much your home is worth? Look no further than Brian Hummel, your trusted Austin realtor with Realty One Group Prosper. Brian is more than just a realtor. He's a full-service expert overseeing your entire transaction from start to finish. He'll lead you through each step of the buying or selling process with questions answered and details explained in plain English. With over two decades in Austin, Brian has witnessed the dynamic growth and evolution of the Central Texas market, making him your invaluable resource for buying, selling, and investing. And as a certified real estate negotiator, Brian brings a strategic and skillful approach to bargaining. He secures the best deals, whether it's getting the highest price for a seller or the most favorable terms for a buyer. When you choose Brian Hummel as your realtor, you're not just hiring a real estate expert, you're gaining a trusted partner committed to your success. Contact Brian today, 512-619-1347. That's 619-1347. Or log on to HummelRealtor.com. That's H-U-M-M-E-L, Realtor.com. Brian Hummel with Realty One, the one you need. The San Francisco 49ers erased a 17-point deficit in the third quarter alone en route to a 34-31 win over the Detroit Lions in the Bay Area yesterday. 
And ouch, Lions fans, that one was there at your fingertips. You could taste that Super Bowl trip. And yet, you choked on it. You choked on the taste. Actually, your team choked on the taste. Your head coach included, too, by the way. I know Dan Campbell came out after the game saying you wouldn't do anything differently. Well, I hope that he's just saying that in defense of himself in that moment, and he really reconsiders the whole idea of going forward on fourth down ad nauseum. Because I could argue, based on three different going forward on fourth down scenarios, there's one that he should have gone for it that he didn't, and the two that he did, where they ended up not picking up the fourth down, the easy, smart decision there was kicking the field goal. Into the first half. Get the ball down to the... Two or three, whatever it was. You're up by 14 points. Fourth down, five seconds left in the half or something around there. And Dan Campbell, without flinching, chooses to kick the field goal. And it's like, all right, well, you're going up by three scores at that point. So I guess that makes sense. They had all the momentum right there, though. If I'm the Lions, that's the fourth down that I'm going for. And then you get to the third quarter where they just need to score points to stop bleeding in a sense. The first time, it would have extended their lead back to a three-possession game. And the second time, would have tied the game. But instead, Dan Campbell gets really hard-headed about things and goes, I call him the compassionate meathead. He goes full meathead there. Goes full meathead and unfortunately costs his team a chance to tie and ultimately win that football game. And oh, by the way, the cherry on top of all of that, at the end of the game, Detroit's driving, and boy, they kind of screwed themselves by getting too close to the end zone because that forced them to spend how much more time to try and get in, and ultimately a timeout too, which by the way is the fault of, I don't know if it was Dan Campbell who makes this call or Ben Johnson, whoever decided to run the football, On third down, bad move by you. Or you needed to have a second play ready to go so you didn't have to burn that time out. You scoring right there was contingent on you being able to kick the ball deep and force San Francisco to run it three times, stop the clock all three times, and get the ball back with anywhere from 30 to 40 seconds left because you only have to kick a field goal at that point. But they run the ball with Dave Montgomery. Everybody knew it was coming, 49ers included. That play gets stuffed. You have to call the timeout. They do eventually get the touchdown, but at that point, you need an onside kick, which is so much less likely with the modern rules in place and how guys who are on the kickoff team don't get that running start anymore. just makes getting that onside kick that much more difficult. They run the statistical analysis. It is significantly less likely that you're going to get an onside kick, and it was already pretty low to begin with. You do have to credit the 49ers, though, for stepping up and making plays in the second half. It was an ugly first half for them. Brock Purdy looked like the Brock Purdy that everybody has predicted we're eventually going to see in these playoffs. I myself last week said Detroit's going to get up early in this game and it's going to force Brock Purdy to have to throw the football more than San Francisco wants him to. They had that. And then they let it slip away. And look, it's not all on Dan Campbell. When he has the defensive back, on a 
That was the turning point in the game right here, by the way. Brock Purdy throws that deep ball that hits the Lions DB in the face mask, and Brandon Ayuk catches the ball as it bounces up in the air within a couple of yards of the end zone. That was the beginning of the end for Detroit. San Francisco scores right there. Shortly after that, Jameer Gibbs on a a weird snap and handoff exchange fumbles the football. You could feel it all caving in at that point. There were a couple of drops after that. Detroit receivers. Josh Reynolds, too, by the way, who I think has been really good for this team in the playoffs. He has a big third down drop, and Detroit just could not get out of their own way at a certain point. They do make it close in the end by scoring that touchdown. That actually gives them the cover for all those people who had Detroit covering the seven last week. But the 49ers do what they have to to win the game. That includes Brock Purdy, by the way, who nobody owes him an apology because Brock Purdy was right there about to give that game away. If that Lions DB catches that interception, the game's not totally over, but we're getting really close to that point. Instead, he has some incredible fortune and also does a great job with his legs at times. We saw this at Iowa State. Less pump fakes at the NFL level. Not going to do nearly as many guys. But Purdy did a good job on a couple of different occasions, picking up huge chunks of yardage for first downs and to get them much closer to scoring touchdowns. Christian McCaffrey continues to be one of the best players in the NFL. Looks like Debo Samuel was, I don't know if we call him fully healthy, but he was healthy enough because he paced the San Francisco receivers. Eight catches for 89 yards. Ayuk had a nice game. Three for 68 and a touchdown. That touchdown was huge. On the Lions side, David Montgomery, 15 for 93 and a touchdown. Jameer Gibbs, 12 for 45 and a touchdown. That big fumble, though. Jamison Williams obviously had that huge touchdown run for the first score for the Lions in the first quarter. 42-yard scamper for a score. The receivers did not step up like I thought they would. Although you do give Jamison Williams credit for getting the rushing touchdown as well. He did have the receiving touchdown near the end of the game. I'm on Ross St. Brown, 7 for 87. They did not look to him enough in the second half when they needed some sort of steadying influence. They went to Sam Laporta a bunch, 9 for 97. Josh Reynolds, 1 for 25 though. Just not enough. I do feel bad for Lions fans. I do. As a formerly tortured Rangers fan who just got to taste that championship for the very first time last, I guess, technically November, although we like to say October, you're going to have to stew on this all offseason. And things do still seem bright for Detroit. They've done a great job of building this roster. And it seems like they are built to compete for at least the next couple of years. But you guys shot yourself in the foot far too many times yesterday on the field, but then also on the sidelines too. By the way, Aiden Hutchinson, has anybody seen him? Was he at yesterday's game? San Francisco did a great job of neutralizing Aiden Hutchinson. He had two passes defended. No QB hits, 
no sacks, no tackles for losses. He didn't have a single tackle in that game. So credit to the San Francisco offensive line for putting extra work in. He was facing constant double teams, and it clearly threw him off. And when San Francisco started to come back, it was giving Brock Purdy enough time to find his open receivers downfield or occasionally, as I did previously mention, use his legs to scramble. All right, now we're not going to spend too much time on this, but Texas basketball did lose on Saturday at BYU. Boy, I'm happy that we don't have to play at BYU again in the sports that I care about the most because that seems to never go well for Texas, regardless of the sport. But Texas did lose to BYU 84-72. There's just a pretty crummy performance on both ends, but especially on the defensive end. When this team is bad defensively, they're having to scramble too much around the perimeter to make up for their guards lacking in size, and it leads leaves way too many lanes wide open for guys to drive and score easy baskets at or around the rim. But Texas needs to have a very short memory with this. Return to the Moody Center tonight to take on the Houston Cougars at 8 o'clock. It is an ESPN Big Monday game. And it's moments like this that you see what this... Rodney Terry team is made of. Houston is the fourth-ranked team in the country. A lot of people think that they have a great chance to win it all this year. So now it's another opportunity for you to boost your resume. All right, coming up, it is a two-segment conversation with comedian Moshe Kasher on his new book, Subculture Vulture. It's Sports Day Plus with Trey Ellie. It's Sports Day Plus with Trey Ellie. Osha Kasher is a comedian, writer, and actor who you can find on Instagram at Moshe Kasher. Check him out in his podcast, The Endless Honeymoon, along with his wife and fellow comedian Natasha Legero. And you can read his new book, Subculture Vulture, a memoir in six scenes. It's actually out tomorrow, January 30th. And his first book event is here in Austin. Also tomorrow, that would be tomorrow night at Book People. It is a conversation being moderated by fellow comedian Duncan Tressel. You can go to bookpeople.com for info and to snag the tickets that do remain. Moshe, thank you so much for the time. How are you doing today? My pleasure. Thank you. I'm good. I'm really good. I'm excited. I, today was a good day in the world of Moshe Kasher. Great to hear. Good review and- in the New York Times. Good review in the New York Times. Good review in the San Francisco Chronicle. I am feeling good. Excellent. Well, congratulations on that. And I understand the rave reviews. I loved this book. First off, Thank the you. premise behind the book of these uh, epiphanous moments or things or aspects of your life that have helped to define who and what you are as a person to this day is a brilliant concept. And I think it's just a, a great dinner question for people that are getting together. And uh, you not only talk about your own experiences with this these things, but you also provide some history lessons along the way as well. Uh, what was the genesis of the idea for this excellent book, Moshe? Uh, well, I, you know, I wrote another book in uh, 10 years ago or something about my kind of childhood drug addiction days. I was in and out of rehab like three times by the time I turned 15. And uh, it ends like the day that I that I get clean. And over the years, a lot of people have asked me, like, what happened next? And uh, the answer is 
everything else, you know, I, I, I really thought at the end of the state that I was in at the end of my first book, I thought that my life was over and it really had kind of just begun. So I kind I walked through this world figuring out like what life had in store for me. Like I'd been saved from the jaws of a shark that I had created myself. And uh, I sort of stumbled into these magical universes that created me. And uh, this book is like, yeah, it's one part history and it's one part comedy and one part memoir and one part love letter to the 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 the, the worlds that have made me. And those six worlds that you focus on are AA. Raves. That's right. Deafness. Yeah, AA and raves, you know, everybody, those go together really easy. AA and raves, everybody that goes to AA long enough has to go to a rave. It's mandated. Well, then Burning Man and stand-up comedy also, for being completely honest about things, although there are plenty of stand-up well, comedians who have gotten sober over time. But then also deafness, and then uh, your Jewishness, I guess, is uh, the way that I'll put it. You say the Jews. Sounds better when I say the Jews, right? It, it sounds a, a little bit softer. <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm Armenian. We're considered the uh, the poor man's Jews, but uh, I still think oh. that, uh, that, you, that you have the uh, the carte blanche on that term. So let's start on the AA side well, of things. Why did AA start clicking for you at the age of 15, which is when you got sober, which is obviously much earlier than many people who ultimately do get sober from whatever the substance addiction is? Well, I come from uh, the just say no, dare rehab generation, as I call it in the book, you know, I, I was of a generation where when you started getting in trouble, the kind of knee jerk reaction was to send kids to rehab. And, uh, and, you know, in some ways, I was a, a beneficiary of it. In some ways, I was a victim of it. My mom started sending me to therapy when I was four, not for drugs, but for other stuff. And when I started to have substance stuff going on, the, the natural, my mother believed in therapy, the way pe- people believe in religion, you know, so at a certain point in my life, I was in therapy eight times a week. That's more times than there are days, but we were doubling up quite a few of those days. And um, so I guess I was lucky enough that when I, my teenage substance stuff started to really get out of control, I was kind of already in AA. I was already in a 12-step world because I'd been forced to go to rehab and meetings as a result of the rehab since I was like, you know, 14. And um, I was lucky that when I needed help, I was already physically in the space where I could turn around and ask for that help. And there was, I was lucky that somebody was there to give it to me. So AA obviously involves the 12 steps. And one of those steps, maybe the most known step is making amends. Was there a hardest apology for you as you were working your way through that step? You know, there's this concept in the 12 steps. Um, and, you know, just to be fair to the listeners like this book is about uh, this section is about like how AA saved my life and reconfigured me but it's also about when I get older uh, you know 15 20 years into it and it starts to feel like it's slipping through my fingers I am still sober um, but but AA itself created these sort of existential questions as I got older like was this a phase was I what what was it that was happening to me you know it was a which was also a part of my journey was that struggle but with the ninth step I think the biggest wisdom in the ninth step is that yes sometimes it's about going up to someone and saying I'm sorry I hurt you how can I make it right but just as often if not more often it's about living your life in a different way and like fixing the harm that you have done you know what they say like a 
the trust bucket fills up a drop at a time, but it only takes one kick to knock the whole thing over. So when I got sober, I put that bucket up right. And with my family, my, my mom in particular, who was like my my champion and my and my uh, adversary through a lot of my drinking, um, it's been a, a, a long and really meaningful uh, repair. When you did find yourself in that existential crisis 15 years into sobriety, 15 years into your relationship with AA, how much of it had to do with the dogmatism that existed within AA? Because you, as you point out, and it's very true, AA is its own special form of religion in a lot of ways. Well, yeah, in, in AA, they say we're, we're spiritual, not religious. But you, then you look up the, the definition of spiritual in the dictionary and it says relating to religion. So I don't really know what that, what that means. Um, there is dogma in AA and, I, and it's a soft dogma, you know, and it's one that uh, it's one that its primary principle. Uh, and like I said, this is as much a love letter as a goodbye letter. Its primary principle, I think, is to lower the bar, to make the dogma a low enough bar that kind of anybody can leap over it because AA is in the business, I think, of saving lives to the degree that it can. So this isn't an attack on it. It's more of a, a, a description of the, of the, the path that I had to walk in it. Um, and part of that was, uh, was dogma based. And part of that was just the, my own kind of journey. Like I said, like when you get sober that young, it's impossible to not have the thought 15 years later, like, was that what I thought it was? Or has it, like every other part of my life, changed? Um, and, uh, and that's some of the questions that I, that I grapple with in that section in the book. As you said a few minutes ago, nothing goes with sobriety like raves. And that is the second scene that you cover in Subculture Vulture. And uh, you went to your first rave in 1995 after getting sober. Why were you never the same after that very first rave? A change that you call instant and extreme. I will. I mean, the, a lot of this book is about, you know, there's some of these worlds that I talk about, deafness and Judaism. These are worlds that I was sort of born into. But, but a lot of these worlds are things that I, it's like I describe the, the books that I loved reading as a kid, like the Narnia book or, or like, um, uh, uh, Harry Potter is like this. It's Star Wars to some degree, which is like it's about this like person who thinks that they're weak and thinks that they have no power and has no people and has no friends and has no uh, no future. And then they walk through. Somebody taps them on the shoulder and says, "Walk through this door." And they walk through, and all of a sudden they're in a different world. And not only are they in that world, they're like a powerful force inside of that world. And like that is totally what happened to me in raves. Um, you know, when I was 15, I got sober. And then at about nine months sober, I started to realize like, oh, this is the rest of my life. Like I'm sober now and I better figure out how to have a life outside of the kind of violence and addiction cycle that I was in when I was, when I was a teenager. So I can kind of choose my own adventure. And that's what this, this book is really is about that adventure. And I went to a rave. I didn't know anybody that went to raves. That was, uh, that was for white boys. And I, that that's not me. I mean, it is me, but I really didn't think it was me when I bought that first ticket to a rave. And I went by myself. And I remember I brought a weapon to the party just in case, you know, and never, you just never know. But it wasn't much of a weapon. It was a bottle of escape cologne stuffed into a sock that I would kind of like <laughs> spin around like a potpourri scented blackjack. I mean, this is the mind. This is the mind I brought with me into that first party. And I walked into that party. And like you said, extreme, instant, I remember I dropped the bag on the ground that had the escape uh, weapon in it. Never saw it again. Stopped wearing escape. Uh, 
walked in and just saw this like throbbing mass of people and this music and and I was like a a a, a reborn person and like I'm not unaware that raves elicit a bit of an eye roll you know it's not you don't usually think like therapeutic breakthrough when you think um edm party but for me it was this like i don't have you ever been to a rave you look like you might have yeah it's been a while of course but yeah you and i are very similar age yeah i was in i was at some raves in the 90s yeah you know like the pacifiers and the stuffed animals and the glow sticks and the glitter and the barrettes that people used to wear like that was for me exactly what I needed. I came from this childhood where I, I missed the childhood because I was busy getting arrested and going to mental institutions and rehab. It was like the opposite of a childhood. And then all of a sudden I had this second chance at, a, at, a, at an artificial childhood where I'm dancing around with people that love each other. And yes, hooking up, that didn't happen a lot. That doesn't happen a lot in childhood. So this was, it's actually more fun than childhood. I got to have the innocent uh, hyperbaric chamber of childhood, but. I also got to get laid, so that's always fun. Well, I'm just impressed with the fact that you could enjoy a cuddle puddle and not be on ecstasy. <laughs> well, I, the truth is, and I know this sounds hard to believe, but like, I was high. I mean, I was sober. I was clean and sober. But there was something about that universe where I, I just got high on on the on the people that were there and on the music and on the dancing, and that led me to, like I said, I wanted to not just be a a member of the of the rebellion. I wanted to lead the rebellion. I wanted to be a Jedi Knight. So I very quickly became a, a rave promoter and threw parties all through the 90s in San Francisco. A DJ. I used to I, I played at uh, hundreds of, of raves in, in the 90s. And eventually, more darkly, the uh, maybe the world's first clean and sober ecstasy dealer. He is comedian Moshe Kasher. We're discussing his new book, Subculture Vulture. It comes out tomorrow, and his first book event is at Book People tomorrow night, moderated by fellow comedian Duncan Trussell. Go to bookpeople.com for info and tickets. Coming up, one more segment with Moshe on the other side. It's Sports Day Plus with Trey Ellie. It's Sports Day Plus with Trey Ellie. One more segment with comedian Moshe Kasher. He's got a new book out. It actually releases tomorrow. It's called Subculture Vulture, a memoir in six scenes. And his first book event is going to be at Book People tomorrow night, moderated by his friend and fellow comedian Duncan Trussell. Go to bookpeople.com for tickets and more info. All right, Moshe, the third chapter is deafness. And this has to do with the fact that you grew up in a deaf family. My mother and father, my half-sister, half-brother, stepsister, aunts, uncles, cousins, everybody, everybody surrounding me was deaf. My, my brother and I were the two hearing kids in a sea of deaf people. And as a result, we spoke sign before we talked. I was a sign language interpreter for 15 years. And, um, and I, got, I got like a, a, real, a real blessing, uh, like a real benefit of being, it's, I, I describe it almost like you're born white in Wakanda. You know, it's like I was born into the into the world, but I was also the adversary of the world. I was a member of the community, but I was also represented the people that had oppressed that community. And it gave me this really unique perspective on the world. How do you feel like the American education system has failed deaf people, Moshe? Well, I think I think we're on an upward trajectory, but the story of sign language is wild. 
320 years ago, there was no sign language. I mean, there was sign language, but there was no recognized sign system. If you were born deaf into a family and you were the only deaf person born into that family, you were screwed because there was nobody to teach you language and there was no language for you to learn. Uh, if you were born deaf, you would just be able, uh, you would just be reduced to whatever gestures you and your family came up with uh, to figure out how to say pass, pass some mashed potatoes. But if you were lucky enough, to have genetic deafness in your family and you're you were born deaf and your sibling was born deaf then the two of you could invent a language a language of two a, a language traded back and forth between siblings a little microcosmic language and it, a, a priest the abbe de Epe in france in the 1700s saw two sisters like that signing back and forth to each other and he looked at what they were doing and he recognized instantly that is language and he told them, teach me what, you, what you're doing, teach me to sign. He wanted them to teach him to sign so that he could teach them French so that they could uh, take the, the catechism and they could be saved. They could, they could go to heaven, which does, I think, I think we can all agree, make sense that uh, if you can't say the catechism, God's not going to let you into heaven. He's like, listen, I'm God, but if they could say it, I mean, I, I would let him in, but what am I supposed to do, learn sign language? So whatever, that was the mission. And they taught him sign language and he taught them french and he established the first school for the deaf in france where then he started to gather deaf from around france and they started to create this sign system and the first sign system was french sign language and it created this system of deaf people teaching the deaf the priest would teach the deaf uh, uh french and he and he learned sign language and they would go around france and they would do these expositions it would be like a guy uh, an audience member would ask a question like some French question like you know how many creams is too many creams for a brie or uh, you know what is the degree of suffering that can be borne by man and the 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 priest would sign it the deaf student would um, would understand it and write and write on the chalkboard in French the answer that three creams um, all life is suffering and the French people would like lose their minds right it was like a circus one of those students was Laurent Clerc and he was a genius. And when Thomas Gallaudet came from America, he said to Laurent Clerc, come with me to America and we can start a school and a science system in America as well. They sailed to America. By the time they landed, Gallaudet knew some sign, Clerc knew English. They set up a school for the deaf. They created American Sign Language. And so from those two sisters to that priest, to that school, to French Sign Language, to Gallaudet, to, to Laurent Clerc, to my mother, to me, this is how I learned language. And this is the story of freedom for the deaf community. But almost as soon as they created this freedom language, hearing people came along and said, let's stop letting them sign and let's teach them how to talk. And that system, it's called the oralism, that system uh, was an imposed kind of darkness on the deaf community for a hundred years until they found their own liberation and overthrew that kind of uh, oppression and took their world back. And why do you cherish the 15 years that you spent as an ASL interpreter, a sign language interpreter? This is my, all of these are, but deafness, these are my people. I am a member of that community as a child of deaf adults. And so to work in that world and see the heights the deaf people can get to, I interpreted for graduate school the discussions, I interpreted for PhD graduations where deaf students were getting their doctorate, and all the way down to interpreting for immigrants who came to America and were learning sign language, but had never, or were adults and had to learn it in their 30s, didn't know the sign system of their own country, didn't know the language of their own country, didn't know English. 
I've interpreted for welfare SSI meetings, and uh, I've interpreted for end-of-life care, and horny people trying to hire sex workers. I've interpreted for it all, and I've been able to see like the full spectrum and how important language is and how, uh, how powerful this community is. The sixth and final scene that you write about, and I love at the very beginning of this, because look, as a fan of stand-up, I'm guilty of calling it this probably way too much for people's comfort. Uh, you can tell insecure comics are about stand-up as an art by how often they feel the need to refer to it as an art. Where does that insecurity come from, Moshe? I have a very specific theory on where the insecurity of comics saying we're artists comes from. And it's because when we started, we really kind of weren't artists. We really were truly just like almost the guy that shovels the elephant between acts at the circus you know like <laughs> that's where we come from we were at like a burlesque show and a lady you know uh, on a unicycle would come and juggle and then she'd uh, hobble off the stage and we'd come on tell a few jokes in between acts and then we got into radio and from the burlesque and vaudeville scene came radio and then every single comedian was doing this thing where you were like the it's the Borax Detergent Hour. Coming up next, a comedy sketch. It's all about Borax and how it can get your whites whiter. Well, that's not very artful. And not only that, but every comedian, you know, comedians I'm sure you've seen are very um, weird and jealous about joke thievery. That's one of our big anxieties, right? I got a theory about that too. Joke thievery was baked in the sausage in the early days of stand-up. In the early days of stand-up, a lot of people, this isn't really my theory, this Cliff, Cliff Nesteroff, who wrote a great book called The Comedians, introduced me to this idea, which is all these comedians borrowed material from each other. Abbott and Costello, when they blew up with Who's On First, there was like 10 other people that did Who's On First. And it wouldn't matter because you were, uh, you know, you were, I was in St. Louis and you were in Iowa. Who cares? Who, are you doing Who's On First in Iowa? Great. I'll do it in St. Louis. But all of a sudden, when Abbott and Costello did it on the radio and it became thought of as an Abbott and Costello bit, everybody started freaking out. Wait, we tell that. Now we can't tell that anymore. So that that open source, that advertisement and open source origin story of stand-up comedy, when stand-up evolved into original material from your own perspective and uh, more of a sort of punk rock thing, I don't do this for the money, we still had this like lingering PTSD from these years where people were like, oh, everybody has the same material. Oh, the only reason we're doing this is because, you know, uh, Hormel Chili will give us an advertisement. And so now here we are in the modern era where, where stand-up is definitely, obviously art, you know, some, I mean, some more than others. But we have this anxiety where we want to like prove like, hey, we're artists, we're artists. And as I say in the book, I go, you don't hear a lot of sculptors calling what they do art. It's like, yeah, we know Rodin. And you find yourself wondering why stand-up is enjoyable. So why do you enjoy it like you do? Well, it is funny because I always look at stand-up. One of the things I love about it, when I'm driving to a gig, I think about people in bands all the time. I'm just like, what hell it would be to be in a band where you're like packing a drum and an amp and a bass and a... I'm just, it's just me. I'm the show. I get out and I go up on stage and then the show's over. I don't understand how anybody wants to see stand-up. It's just some person talking about things they were thinking about. It seems like it, there are circuses out there and plays. I don't know if people know about this. They're, they have those and they're really big. Uh, but there's something about stand-up, even as simple and analog as it is, that is at an advantage to every other art, which is it's it just is funnier. It's funnier than any, I love romantic comedies. I love comedy movies. I don't, I laugh four times during a great movie. 
you go to see a stand-up and you don't laugh every four seconds, that stand-up's having a very bad night. So that's the power to me of stand-up is, is in nothing else. It's not about uh, being a philosopher. Sometimes it is. It's not about uh, offending people. Sometimes it is. It's not about speaking truth to power. Sometimes it is. What it really is about is giving people a night where they are laughing more than they could laugh at anything else. And I feel like that has its own value to just be able to elicit an, an involuntary joy response from an audience I think that has its own value and is and, and is art. Sure, I'll say it. It's an art form. All right, last thing, Moshe. I spoke with your wife, Natasha, last weekend prior to her headlining sets at Cap City Comedy Club. Uh, shortly after that, she decided to go viral by uh, doing something pretty gutsy <laughs> following Burt Kreischer on stage. Uh, is that something she uh, gave you a heads up on? And uh, what did you think of uh, when, when you saw it, uh, saw it play out on video? What do you think I thought? Do you, have you heard about my mother? I didn't care at all. I was just like, oh yeah, this reminds me of my mom. This reminds me of the old days with the ASL interpretive dance. I don't care. Yeah, she took her shirt off at a club. It was very funny. I thought it was very punk rock and very cool. And honestly, like the world is careening in, into meaninglessness so quickly. Like anything you could do to shake up the, uh, the banality of reality, I, I'm all for it. I learned that at Burning Man too. Uh, anytime you can jam the culture just a little bit, uh, it just it, it, it makes life more interesting. That's what I want. And I think that's what this book is about is is my life has been my religion. Yeah, I'm Jewish, but my religion really is like fun. I want to like drink all of life. I want to like so I want to squeeze the towel out. But it's I want by the time I'm like shuffling off this mortal coil to be like I did all the things I wanted to do. And this book is about the the things that I did that made my life worth living and made me who I am today. Completely agree. He is Moshe Kasher, comedian, writer, and actor. Follow him on Instagram at Moshe Kasher. Check out his podcast with Natasha, The Endless Honeymoon, and get the new book. It comes out this Tuesday, Subculture, Vulture, a memoir in six scenes. If you're here in Austin on Tuesday, January 30th, he's going to be doing his very first book event at Book People. Of course, the independent bookstore in town, Duncan Trestle, is going to be moderating that conversation. Should be a lot of fun. Moshe, thank you so much for the time today, man. Congratulations on the book, and best of luck with Thanks in the Future. Thank you for having me. It was a great conversation. All right, another show is in the books. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I'll be back tomorrow at 6. In the meantime, have yourselves a great rest of the evening and hook them. It's Sports Day Plus with Trey Elling.